You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Thank you. Robbie's overly gracious in his words and comments and uh, so thankful for him. And I have an extreme respect and love for your pastor. And he's become a dear friend and uh, recognized God's unique hand upon him and upon you and your church. I was supposed to be preaching this weekend in our church, one of the few this summer, this weekend's this summer I was going to, but when the call came to preach here, our elders kind of have a standing sort of agreement uh, that when Harvest Oakville asks anything, the answer is yes. Uh, because we love you so much and feel such partnership, but also because we see God's unique hand on this place and on your elders and staff and your pastor specifically of a unique calling in our province and in our country. And so we want to do whatever we can do. And I get at times an opportunity to preach here and there, and I got to say it's at the top of my list. It's an honor to stand in this pulpit and open God's word to you. So I'm thankful to be here and uh, really thank uh, Robbie and your elders and your pastors for this invitation. I've entitled the sermon, Things Are Not Always As They Seem. And that's a reality for us. We think we see and we know, but often we're wrong in what we see. I want to illustrate it with a couple images. I have an image here on the screen of a couple tables and the tabletops. How many people think those tabletops are different uh, shapes? Does not the one look longer and rectangular and the other look square? Would you believe it if I told you they were actually the same shape? I didn't believe it, so I actually used an illustration program to draw on the top and turn, because I just couldn't believe it. I read the description. There's no way they're the same shape, but they are. Our eyes deceive us. Here's another deception, our eyes, an illusion here on this picture. Uh, block A or square A and B, how many think they're different colors? Yeah, you're all catching on here. They're actually, the, the little severe, the green thing look, makes us look like they're different colors, but when they put lines up, and even there it can still sort of influence us, but if you look at each of those, they're actually the same color of those two uh, horizontal, uh, vertical lines there. And so our eyes deceive us. We think we see. It's called illusions, right? We, we think we see and understand. We think we know what the reality is, but we really can't always trust our physical senses and what we see and what we think, and we can't trust all the time of what our minds tell us is reality. This is an example of what we're going to learn, Lord willing, from God's word this morning in the book of Job. And so if you want to turn to the book of Job, uh, we're going to cover 33 chapters of the book this morning. We got out about midnight last night, so the 11th service is going to have to wait a while. Actually, I was going to preach a sermon out of the book of Romans, probably Romans 14, and uh, a week or two ago, my assistant said, I think you should preach Job 4 to 37, and I prayed about it and sought the Lord, and I changed my sermon. The reason I hesitated is I love to just go verse by verse through God's Word. That's kind of what God's called me to, and that's my passion, and 99% of my sermons are just verse by verse walking through, but obviously I can't do that with 33 chapters, and so I'm going to really just summarize these chapters. We'll read a couple verses here and there, and I almost feel guilty on this, but this is God's inspired Word, and Job chapter 4 to 37 is actually a conversation. It's an account of a conversation conversation Job has initially with three of his friends, and then his fourth friend weighs in at the end, and Job never actually answers him. And so I'm going to summarize this conversation and just trust the Lord that this is what he wanted for us this morning. 
It's God's word, and so I, I'm not going to apologize for this. I'm just going to tell you I feel a little uncomfortable with this, uh, but I really believe that the message of this conversation is what God would have for us for this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll look at God's word. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for this time. We believe by divine appointment we are here today. There's no accidents. There's no things that just happen by chance. You are sovereign over all things, including every one of us and every detail of our lives. And so we believe you've brought us here this day to have our eyes lifted in worship, to be reminded of the truth of who you are and who Christ is and this wonderful thing we celebrate of salvation. But Father, I pray now as we come to your word, I pray as we, we look at the story of this man named Job and all that he encountered, as we look at his conversation with his friends, I pray that your inspired text, these words you moved to be written for our instruction, Father, would you help us to submit ourselves to your word? Would you cause our hearts to be receptive and our minds to understand that through your spirit we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I just want to give you a little context. Perhaps most of you know the story, but some of you don't, and the story of Job. And Job was a man who lived, I think, probably uh, prior to 2000 B.C., and Job was a very wealthy, successful businessman with a wonderful family, and everything was going well. And in Job chapter 1, we're given an insight into something we normally never see, which is we're given a view into the throne room of God in heaven, and a conversation that happens as the angels come, as they do on a regular basis, and give account to God because their messengers are sent ones. And as they come, Satan comes before God as well. And God initiates this entire sort of uh, uh, interaction on the, in the life of Job. And he says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? He's a blameless man. He's an upright man. He's a man who fears me. And he's a man who says no to temptation. Now, Job was not a perfect man, but Job was a godly man walking in obedience to his father, the one he believed in. And Satan says, the only reason Job fears you and serves you and loves you is because you bless him. You've made him wealthy and you've given him a family. And if you took those things away, he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, go ahead and do it. But he says, you can't touch his body, but you can take everything else. And a shocking sort of, uh, sort of a sequence of events, literally within about an hour, Job finds out all 10 of his children, 10 children, seven sons and three daughters, all 10 were killed at once as a house collapsed on them. And all in that same hour, he finds out all of his wealth, his entire business is wiped out, gone. He goes from being incredibly wealthy to bankrupt. He goes from having an amazing family, sort of in the Jewish sense, a perfect family, and he's lost everything. And yet Job does not sin. Then we're given another glimpse into the throne room of God. And as the angels come to give account, Satan comes, and God says, have you seen my servant Job, an upright man? Could you imagine God get, declaring that of you, upright and blameless and God-fearing? And that's what he says. And Satan says, yeah, he only does that because he's still got his health. If you take his health, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, go ahead and take it. And instantly, Job is struck with terrible sickness. And he's covered from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head in what seems like open sores and terrible pain. And we find him sitting what looks like outside of the city in the garbage dump. And he takes a broken piece of clay. And he's, pardon me, but he's scraping the pus off of his sores. And it's a terrible picture of horrendous suffering. He goes from a blessed life to what seems like a cursed by God life but things are not always as they seem. 
That's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, Job has a sort of a lament, and he actually says, I wish I had never been born. My life has taken such a terrible turn, and I'm in such awful pain emotionally and relationally and physically. I wish I'd never been born. And then we come to this conversation, chapter 4 through 37. We have this conversation with his friends. And really what they're discussing is the principle I want to lay out and discuss with you today. The principle, the the truth, the biblical and theological truth they're discussing is this thing called divine retribution. They actually debate this over 33 chapters. His friends are doing their best to convince Job of why he's suffering, and he does his best to convince them they're wrong in what they see and what they think. There's an extended dialogue that actually encompasses three sort of cycles as the three friends each take a run at Job, and he defends himself to all of them in the three cycles, and then the fourth friend, Elihu, weighs in, and Job never even answers him. But they're dealing with this idea of divine retribution. What is divine retribution? It's this. God rewards or blesses those who obey, and God punishes those who disobey. God rewards those who are faithful or those who obey, and God punishes those who reject Him and rebel against Him and disobey. This is a biblical theological concept. The idea of retribution is common in our society, even by those who don't acknowledge God and divine retribution. It's kind of almost a universal truism that people, is it not true that most people you know would say, yes, if you're a good person, good things should happen, and if you're not a good person, then you shouldn't have good things happen to you. This is the accusation unsaved people often bring against the God of the Bible, as if he's sovereign and in control and such a good God, why do what? Bad things happen to good people. This is what's being debated between Job and his friends. This principle of divine retribution is actually based on this truth. God is a just God. Is that not true? Is God not absolutely just? Always righteous in all he does and always right? But if God is a good God, if God is a just God, then of course he would always reward faithfulness and punish disobedience. This principle of divine retribution is taught all through Scripture in many passages. Let me just read a few for you. We just finished uh, studying the book of Romans. took us a couple years, and we finished uh, in the winter, late winter. And uh, Paul just lays out an amazing discourse in the book of Romans. In chapter 2, he really uh, builds on chapter 1 on dealing with the issue of sin. In Romans 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul addresses this idea of divine retribution. He says, "...because of your hard, impenitent heart..." You are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He, now listen, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, ultimately that means the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Paul teaches this same thing in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, will from the Holy Spirit reap eternal life. Divine retribution, it's a biblical principle. The book of Revelation, as John writes the book of Revelation in the end times, Revelation 20, verse 11. 
Revelation 20, 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the, the ultimate judge, God himself, right? And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead and those who were in it and death and Hades gave up. In other words, every single person on planet earth is going to stand before the judge. And he will judge each one of them according to what they had done. If you remember the story of Israel coming into the promised land, remember when Joshua led them across the Jordan River? And what was the first thing they did? He split them up into two groups. All of the nation of Israel half stood on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerizim. And Deuteronomy 28 tells us, and God said to them, if you obey me, I will bless you, and if you disobey me, I will curse you. It's a divine principle. It's a universal principle. And that's the principle, really, of the book of Job and trying to, his friends debate this, and that's really what we're trying to unpack today is this idea that God will bless those who obey, have faith in him, and God will punish those who reject him, who disobey. That's the principle, but there's a problem with that principle, isn't there? There's a problem with that principle because the problem is this. Why do the righteous suffer then? And why do the wicked prosper? That's a reality every single one of us struggle with. If, you, if you've lived any kind of life, you face this issue. You seriously, seriously question this divine principle. Can it really be true? It certainly doesn't be, appear to be true in my life, you would say. I'm serving God. I'm following God. I'm faithful. But I don't seem blessed. And why do the wicked seem blessed? I think Job had believed this truth firmly when we start in chapter 1. I think he's having a massive struggle right now. It's clear he is from his dialogue with his friends. His friends firmly believe this principle and they press Job to accept this truth. It's interesting. We see his friends. We are introduced to them in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And Job's friends come, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. If you're pregnant today with a boy, there's a name for you. One of those three. Guarantee nobody else in his class will have that name. <laughs> Ilfaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they've traveled a long way to come to see him. They've been very intentional to come to see their friend. And the text tells us they came and they didn't even recognize him. He was so overwhelmed with physical suffering. And when they finally realize it's him, they sit beside him out on the ash heap there for seven days and don't say a word. That's when... His friends are at their best before they open their mouths. After seven days, though, they speak. And the text tells us they sought to bring sympathy and comfort to Job. And can I tell you, they do a pitiful job, a pitiful job of bringing sympathy and comfort. But their, their, their motive is good. Their intent is very good. They're not aware of what we are from chapter 1 and 2. And so their motive is true because they believe in divine retribution. So when they look at Job, all ten of your children were killed in a clear act of God. All of your wealth was taken in a clear act of God. And all of your health was taken in a clear act of God. Therefore, what we see, we know. Therefore, Job, you must have sinned. And you must have sinned wickedly for such a terrible calamity to come upon you. And so their heart motive is good. Job, you must repent. You must acknowledge your sin. Because if you acknowledge your sin, then God will bless you. But if you stay in your sin, God will continue to curse you, to punish you. They believe in divine retribution. They believe they're there to help, friend, uh, to help Job, their friend. 
They believe Job must acknowledge his sin and repent, and then God will turn from his chastisement and punishment. However, what we see is not always the reality. What we think is true is not always true. Just to give you a couple sort of examples of their argument with them, because it's this 33 long chapter dialogue, I'll just read a couple if you want to just follow quickly. We're going to jump to a few passages. Job chapter 4, Eliphaz is speaking here. Job chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Eliphaz says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Divine retribution. Job, we all know, the innocent never are punished by God. They don't perish. The, the innocent are never cut off. The upright are never cut off by God. Job, we know that principle is true. And as we have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, what? Reap the same. Job, you're reaping trouble, so you must have sown trouble. Ilphaz is convinced of this. In chapter 8, flip over to chapter 8, Bildad takes a run at Job. Chapter 8, verse 3, he asks this question, does God pervert justice? And the answer is, no, God never perverts justice. God is always a just judge. God never does wrong. Does the Almighty pervert the right? Absolutely not. There's the principle of divine retribution. God will always do what's right. And now look what he says in verse 4. It's shocking. If your children have sinned against him, against God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Could you imagine saying that to someone who's just lost their child? To someone who's just lost 10 children? All of his children in one act? Do you see what he's saying? Job, your children died because they sinned against God. And you have sinned as well. It says in verse 5, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He, God, will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Do you see what these friends are convinced of? Job, you've done wrong, you've sinned, you've been evil, you've been wicked, but if you were pure and upright, if you repent and, and seek to walk in holiness, then surely God will rouse himself and restore your rightful habitation. Verse 7, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Verse 8, or verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? He's using sort of a, an example. When we drive along and we see bulrushes growing, we know there's standing water there, right? It's just an obvious connection. What we see is we may not see the water, but we know it's there because what we see, we understand. And he's using that. Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Job, the reality is we see you're suffering terribly from the hand of God, so therefore you must have sinned. And they're convinced things are always as we seem. Flip over to chapter 22. Eliphaz is speaking again here. 22, verses 5 to 11. Job 22, 5. Eliphaz says, is, your, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Is that true? Is Job's evil abundant? Did not God himself declare he's an upright man, blameless, and, and turns away from temptation? Where does Eliphaz get this from? There's no end to your iniquities. The assumptions, because what he sees, he thinks, defines what he doesn't see. And he's convinced he understands the reality. He's so convinced, listen to what he attacks Job on. He says in verse 6, you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've taken money from, from family members, from countrymen for nothing. 
You've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You've withheld bread from the hungry. Verse 8, a man who with power possessed the land. This is Job, and the favored man lived in it. You've had all this power over people, Job. And verse 9, you've sent widows away empty. And the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, verse 10, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. Darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is any of that true? But they're so convinced by the extreme suffering, there must be extreme sin, so they know the reality. Just look a little bit further on in chapter 22, verse 21. Agree with God and be at peace, Job, and therefore good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. In other words, start following God, start obeying God again. Verse 23, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up, and if you remove injustice far from your tents. And then finally, flip over to chapter 36. Elihu, the last friend who Job doesn't even bother to answer, comes, the younger one. He does a wonderful job extolling God's greatness and says some good things, but chapter 36, verse 10, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. 36.11, if they listen and serve him, what? If you listen, obey God, and serve God, if you follow God faithfully, what? They complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. It's a prosperity gospel. Now, in the Old Testament with Israel, we understand that. It's certainly not a New Testament teaching. But here he's saying, listen, Job, those who have prosperity throughout all their life, it's evidence that they're following God, obeying God, pleased by, pleasing God, and God is blessing them. Verse 12, but if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. He's saying those who are living a long, successful life, obviously God's pleased with them, and those who die young, God was not pleased with them. Isn't that an amazing message for you today? If you've lost a loved one seemingly far too early in life, does that mean God was cursing them and God didn't love them? Is that really the reality we're take away? You can see why these friends are such pitiful friends. Now, lest we be a little bit too harsh on these men, we've been given an insight that they have not been given. We've been given a glimpse into the throne room of God. We've been given a, a view behind the story in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We understand there's more happening here than meets the eye. I think far too often we're exactly like these friends are. And we think we see and we think we know. And we look at things happening in our own life and we look at things happening in people in our church and in our small group and we think we know. We think we can make the proper assessment and analyze this thing. These friends are wrong. They, they think Job's character and attitude and his words and his actions are sinful, but they're wrong. This is actually not divine retribution. The core question this truth raises then, the problem we deal with, if divine retribution is true, then how do we answer this? Why do good people like Job suffer? Why does God allow or, listen, I think it's more than allow. I think if you look at the theology of the book of Job, and we just taught through this this spring, we took eight weeks to go through the book, and chapter one and two, it's very obvious. God does not just allow, God brings this into Job's life. Job says it, if you read the book, you'll see over and over, he knows this isn't happenstance, he knows it isn't chance, he doesn't blame it on Satan, even though Satan was an agent in bringing this, he knows God brought this into his life. His friends also understand that. 
So how do we wrestle with that? What do we do with this truth that God brings horrible suffering into Job's life, a man who's blameless, upright, and God-fearing? Does it not leave you saying, this is so wrong, so unfair, so unjust? Job is defending himself in this 33 chapters of dialogue. His friends are convinced that he's sinful, and that's why God's done this. And Job says, listen, I don't know what this is or why it's happening, but I know I have not sinned. Let me just show you some of Job's statements on this. Turn back to Job chapter 9. Just to kind of try to give samples, examples of this dialogue that's happening for 33 chapters. Job 9 verse 15. Job 9, 15. Though I am in the right. What do you mean, though I'm in the right? I have not sinned. You're saying I've sinned. I'm not, I have not sinned. I'm right about this. You're wrong. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him, answer God. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. It's interesting as I read these verses, I want you to understand. Job knows he hasn't sinned, and God hasn't brought the punishment because of sin. Job doesn't really understand at all why this is happening, but Job also knows one other thing. God is not as equal that he can stand and call God to give account. Just listen to the language as he makes this statement that he knows he does not sit in judgment on God, even though he has a hundred questions. He says, I'm in the right and I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summon him, God, and he answers me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why? Because he's God and he doesn't answer to me his creation. Verse 17, he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. I'm I'm not guilty of any sin causing this. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? You can't call God to give account to you. Verse 20, though I am in the right, this isn't come because of my sin. My own mouth would condemn me. You don't stand before God as an equal. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. Verse 24, I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, now look at his conclusion. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You can see how Job is starting to go a little bit sideways here. Chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7. Though you know that I am not guilty... There is none to deliver you out of your hand. He knows he has no escape from this calamity, but it has not come because of his sin. Job chapter 13. Job 13, 18, verses 18 and 19. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. What do you mean? I know nobody's going to find sin having caused this. I know I shall be in the right. Verse 19, who is there who will contend with me? Listen, my friends, you bring accusations and you blame me. I'm telling you, you're going to lose on this in the sense that I'm not guilty. You're not going to find me guilty. You can contend I'm guilty, but in the end, I will be found right. Turn over to Job chapter 21 as he not only struggles with why does this happen to him and why is this suffering happening to him, but Job also struggles with the other flip side of it is why do the wicked prosper? If I'm following God and why I'm suffering, why in the world do the wicked prosper? Job 21 verse 7. Why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring, their children are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. 
Look at what he talks about their businesses. Their bulls breed without fail, and their cow calves and does not miscarry. Their business profits. Verse 11, about their children and their family. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. Their, their children are happy, and my children are gone. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre, and they, they rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They, they spend their days in prosperity, and they go down to Sheol. They go down... In peace, they go down to Sheol. They die at a ripe old age and happy. They say, now this is their attitude, these ones who are prospering, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. We don't want to hear your word. Then what is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand and the counsel of the wicked is far from me? Job has a massive struggle now. Because he can't figure out why, as he's been serving God and been faithful, he's suffering so profoundly, and he can't figure out why those who have nothing to do with God and ignore his word and don't want anything, and they're prospering their whole life. It's having a significant struggle here. I believe Job used to believe in divine retribution. Now I don't think he has a clue what to believe. He knows something's off, something's wrong, something's incomplete, but he can't figure it out. We have the principle of divine retribution. We have the problem of if that's true, then why do we see wicked people prospering and good people suffering? The answer I want to give to you in two perspectives. The first perspective is the wrong perspective. I'll tell you that right up front. The first perspective is the perspective of Job's friends, but sadly so many of us, and it's the wrong perspective. Then we'll look at the right perspective. First, the wrong perspective. I've labeled this a horizontal perspective. It's too horizontal. We need to see things on the horizontal level, but we need to see things beyond that. But so many of us are blind beyond the horizontal, temporal, physical. What I see is reality. What I can understand is the truth. What makes sense to me must be the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong and what is true. That's the horizontal perspective. You see, divine retribution, as I said, is tied closely to God's justice because God is a just judge. He will always reward those who are faithful. He'll always punish those who are evil or sinful. Yet how do we experience what we see in our life and how do we ex explain what Job is going through? Why does a good godly man suffer so terribly at the hands of God? How can God be good, just, kind, and loving and do what he did to Job or do what perhaps he's doing in your life? And how can so many wicked people in this world have such easy lives with health and wealth and family and everything goes well all the time for them and yet they ignore, deny, hate, and thumb their noses at God? Have you struggled with this issue? Are you struggling with this today? The reality is sometimes we suffer because of our sin. Let's just put that out there. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Sometimes our suffering, and you need to look at it if you're suffering, if trials have come, if sometimes God is disciplining because of our sin, and the answer is repentance. And so that's a, that's a true situation, but that's not the situation here we're dealing with. Sometimes we suffer not in any way related in any realm to our own actions. You may have loved ones who were following the laws of the road and driving carefully, and some drunk driver ran a red light and maimed or killed. And the suffering has nothing at all, is not at all any way connected to the sin of your loved one. They suffer just because. 
You may eat healthy, exercise all the time, but the call from the doctor comes and he says you have cancer. It's not in any way tied to your actions or anything in your life. It just is. And maybe you're suffering with that. Maybe you're struggling with that right now. Why, God? I, I seek to live faithfully and to walk after you. And, and yet, why do I have so many relationship problems in my family? Why do we seem plagued? Or perhaps you're that person at work who, who, who carries out your job with an ethic and an honesty and a, and a kindness and a faithfulness, and then you look around at perhaps some fellow employees who are, they have terrible character, or they gossip, or they attack, or they lie, or they have awful ethics, and they get the promotion and you don't. Why does that happen? Why do they get ahead and you don't? Why is it that you love God and serve God, you faithfully give of your income, but you can't get a break? Everything seems to go wrong, wrong for you. And yet all around you are unsaved people who don't care at all about God, and they have such easy, wonderful lives, and their kids are healthy, and they're healthy, and their investments are always up and to the right, and they have a nice big house, and everything they touch seems to turn to gold. And some people have told you, just wait, just wait, things will turn around, and it hasn't, and you've been decades like that, and you're saying, why, God? How can you be a just God? Perhaps you're here today and you're still saying, why, God, my spouse left me and I sought to love them and serve you. Or we have been so faithful and yet our son or daughter has walked away from the Lord and walked away from us. Can you identify with Job's pain and heartache in some way? Why, God, why me, why this? I think of Job after chapter 1. All of his children are instantly taken and all of his wealth is instantly gone. He's bankrupt now. And the text tells us he worshiped God and he did not sin and he did not charge God with wrong. And yet then his health was taken as well. I don't think any of us would blame him from saying, God, you're unfair, you're unjust, this is so wrong. How do we answer this? We know Job's friends are not right in their assertion that Job has suffered. He's not a wicked sinner. We know Job is right in his defense, but how do we answer this? In our suffering, and, and we think we see and we know, and, and we look at things and we, we think we understand, and therefore we're so easily led to the place of being bitter at God, angry at God, accusing God of being uninvolved, unloving, unkind, unfair. The problem is our vision is horizontal. The problem is we're judging everything based on what we know and what we think and what makes sense to us. We fall into the category of Job's friends. We, we turn our accusations against God because it doesn't make sense. It seems unfair. It seems wrong. And so we sit in judgment on God. That's a result of a faulty vision, a faulty understanding, our eyes set on the wrong thing. But another problem of a horizontal vision is we sit in judgment on others. We turn our judgment against God because he's wrong in doing what he's doing in our life and it's not for our good. But we also, sadly, and we see this a lot in church, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you've seen this and perhaps you've been guilty of this. We start to judge other people wrongly. We think we know, we think we see, we think we understand. And so we see them suffering, we see them losing things and we, we think, listen, we may not say it, but we sometimes think, listen, if you love God a little more, that wouldn't happen. If you were more faithful, that wouldn't happen. 
I've talked to people who have been incredibly hurt because some of their children have walked away from the Lord or them, and others in the church have made them to feel like if they had been as faithful, if they had been serving God, if they had been whatever, then this wouldn't have happened to them. Or some, perhaps, you're happily married and have a wonderful marriage, and maybe you're Maybe you don't say it, but maybe it think, crops up and you see someone whose marriage has ended and you're sitting in judgment. If you had been as good as I, if you had been as faith, if God loved you as much as he loved me, this wouldn't be happening. Sadly, we are like Job's friends far too often. Instead of bringing sympathy and comfort, we actually bring more pain upon those who are suffering. Now, sometimes we need to bring a hard word that's difficult to say because their suffering is because of their sin. But we need to be careful because we don't always see things accurately. And when we start acting and sitting in judgment and we think we know but we don't. Or maybe you're like, my small group is thriving and people love it and yours is failing. God must love us more. We must be more obedient. Sadly, I've seen it in a lot of places Talk to people who have said it blatantly to me when they have wealth, when they have extra, when they're doing well in the financial books. And they literally will say, well, if others worked as hard as I did, if others saved as well as I did, if others were as, took some you know, steps and did, then they would have, really? I, I'm not denying you worked hard and I'm not denying you took some steps and I'm not denying you saved but do you understand that there's some other people who worked harder than you did and sought to save better than you did and God's plan was to take it all away? And how dare we sit in judgment and then heap more suffering on them? Job's friends judged him 100% wrong. When we get to chapter 42, God says to Job, if you pray for your, sin, your friends, I will forgive your friends of their sin. The friends were completely wrong. Job was completely right, but everything seems turned upside down. Things are not always as they seem. The perspective of a horizontal perspective of judging what's happening in your life right now based on what makes sense to you and what you understand and what you can see around you in this life is the wrong perspective. It will wreck you and ruin you and destroy your heart. So what's the proper perspective? Obviously, it's the opposite. The proper perspective is seeing this world and all the events of this world through eternal eyes, through heavenly eyes, to go vertical. It's so crucial. Folks, listen, you can't make sense of so much of this life if your eyes are horizontal when you're seeing and assessing based on the temporal, the finite, the limited, the physical world. You and I need to have our eyes lifted up. We need to see everything through heavenly, eternal eyes. We need to understand that there's so much more to reality than what we can see and touch and understand. We would not know of a throne room of God except God revealed it in his word. There's another reality called heaven. There's another reality of angels, messengers of God. There's another reality of, of the all-sovereign God who has his plan and purpose for your life. And there's another reality called eternity. We can't measure everything based on the 70 give or take years of this planet and this life. We need to have eyes that are lifted up. I was reminded when I was studying this of Psalm 73, and the psalmist in Psalm 73, uh, it's not David, uh, but the, the psalmist writes 
in, in, listen to his words, truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart, divine retribution principle, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. He said, I was having some significant struggles. Listen to this, verse 3 of Psalm 73, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Ever been there? I was envious when I saw how easy and comfortable their life was. He goes on to describe his struggle with this. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Not a great thing to say about anybody, but he's talking about how just easy their life is. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He goes on to describe it. He's saying, I have this huge trouble. I'm having problems and I'm having trouble and they have everything so wonderful in their life. But then he says this, I was feeling envious of the wicked. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. I think what he's saying is I was seeing everything and assessing them and me on a horizontal, temporal level. But when I went into the temple of God, he lifted my gaze. You ever had that happen when we're worshiping? Parents, have you ever done that with your children? You come up and they, you literally take their face and lift it up and say, you need to see things differently. The psalmist, everything changed for him, and yet his circumstances never changed. The, the, the wicked were still prospering and he was still suffering, but everything changed for him. Why? He was reminded as his eyes got off the horizontal, onto the vertical, onto eternity, onto the other reality of a sovereign God working his plans. He was reminded that God sees and knows all things. He rules over all things. He's always, always, always making everything right. He corrects every wrong. He repays every evil. He punishes every sin. He takes down every self-elevated sinner. He lifts up the broken. He restores the lost. He renews the destroyed, and he rewards the faithful. Divine retribution is an absolutely true biblical principle. Our problem is we want it all to happen in 70 years. God's plan is in the timeline of eternity. We must see things through the vertical, not horizontal eyes. We must see things through heavenly eyes, through the eternal perspective. Listen, folks, you must see your world and this life and your family and your possessions and your experiences and your opportunities and every day and every week and every month and every year and all of the troubles and all of the problems and all of the loss and all of the pain. You must see that and understand that in light of eternity. In light of another reality. For when we can get our eyes off of what we understand and what makes sense to us and start understanding there's a sovereign plan that's so far beyond us, then we'll stop judging God and stop being bitter towards God and stop accusing Him of being unloving and unkind. We'll stop judging one another wrongly. You say, I know. Can I just tell you, sometimes you don't know. Live by faith, not by what? Sight. Just think, just let me remind you of Job. Job's children were lost, yes, but it's clear from the context they were followers of Yahweh as well, and so it's just a brief time. Now, if you've lost children, I'm not diminishing the mourning and the pain of that, but remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, Christians who have fallen, have, have died that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Job's honestly mourning the loss of his children, but the eternal perspective is I will see them again. And it's not that long. 
How about Job's wealth? His wealth was gone, but it's not eternally gone. We get so short-sighted. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Stop setting your heart and mind on the temporal nature of wealth in this planet. But this is hard to do, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. I have my days. You know, Robbie mentioned I had spent over total 18 years in business, and I loved my career, and Cindy and I thought that was God's call for us, and, and, and I was climbing the corporate ladder, and, and, you know, and God called us out of that to seminary and to full-time ministry, but I still could have my days. I can have a pity party better than anybody I know. And on those days where I'm fleshly and I've lost my, my perspective, I'll just be honest, a little confession time by a pastor here. I would be retired right now if I had stayed in business. And some days I think about that. I have four siblings. They've all done very well in this world, and, and they're retiring, and they spend their days doing whatever they want. And, and we spent any money we had saved up to go to seminary, and we had kids. And, and then, you know, the pay in the church isn't exactly the same in the business world. And, and, and some days I, get, I can just wallow and spiral down because my, my eyes move off of him. I start to wallow in, and I start to think, you know, this, this isn't fair, and this isn't right, and what if I had of, and it just, it's so easy to go there, isn't it? And when I do, I start to grumble. We need to get our eyes lifted back up. Job's health was taken, yes, I can't imagine what he's going through, but can I remind you of 1 Corinthians 15? Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown in a natural body is raised a spiritual body. God's purpose for your life and his plan may be a lot of physical suffering and disabilities and unable, and there may be days where you can so easily grow bitter. Can I ask you to lift your eyes off the temporal and off the horizontal, and this life is but a vapor, a scratch on the timeline of eternity, and for all eternity, we will have perfect bodies. You don't know, and I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. But get your eyes back on him. You know, folks, we, we, we so often live like those who don't understand what we understand. We've been given divine revelation. We know there's a supernatural, all-sovereign God. It's fascinating what God does for Job after this conversation in chapters 38 to 41. I encourage you to go read it. God has a conversation with Job, and he never answers why. But what he does do is remind Job of how sovereign he is and how in control he is and how intimately involved he is in all of creation about the birds and the, the mountain goats and about the snow and the rain. He says, I know every single thing that's happening in my creation and it all operates exactly as I designed it to operate and I'm sovereign over all of it. Get your eyes onto him. Let me just close with a reminder from... Job, as the end in chapter 42, it's fascinating as you get there. I've always been fascinated for years now, decades, by this book. We get to chapter 42, and can I just tell you, Job never has an answer of why. Never knows why this happened. 
Job never even knows what we know from chapter 1 and 2. When I was studying this this spring, I kept thinking, God, it would at least be fair if you would tell Job about the conversation before the throne room. Because at least if he knew that much, he would be, it would be much easier to kind of just go, okay, I can come under all of this. But God never gives him that glimpse. He could have. And so we get to chapter 42, and after God has lifted Job's gaze off the horizontal onto the vertical, after God has graciously shown Job that I'm sovereign over everything, nothing touches you or happens that is not part of my sovereign plan for your good and my glory. And when Job finally comes to have that understanding, when he's reminded again of who God is and how intimately involved he is in all of even the suffering and loss, Job answers the Lord in 42.1, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Is that not true? Job says, I know God, you could literally raise my 10 children from the dead right now. I know you could bring all my wealth back. I know you can do whatever you want to do. And therefore, I know that everything that's happened to me is under your sovereign plan. Do you see the freedom that brings? It doesn't take away the pain in this world, but it changes everything. And then he quotes God from one of God's speeches in the earlier chapters. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? I just love how he quotes that back. He says, like, I, I was speaking and I shouldn't have. He said, I uttered what I did not understand. Oh, that we would say that a little bit more and express our opinions and our judgments. I spoke, uh, you ever guilty of this? I, I speak and I don't even know what, I think I know, I think I know, I think I see, but in reality, I should have kept my mouth shut. And then this statement, that just rocked me when I studied it. I, I, I spoke about things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now think about the man sitting outside of the city in the garbage dump, covered in sores, massive physical pain, mourning the loss of 10 children, bankrupt, he and his wife don't know how they'll feed themselves the next day, with his best friends having caused more pain. And he says, your plans for me have been too wonderful such that I can't even begin to comprehend them. How do you, in the middle of suffering like that, declare that this plan is so wonderful? It doesn't feel wonderful but by faith I understand it is. Here and I will speak, he's quoting God again, I will question you and make it known to me. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He's not seeing God physically. He's saying, I now see in a new way. By faith, believing. And then the result, verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent. Can I tell you, this is where many of us need to go right now. When he says, I despise myself, the idea in the Hebrew is I go low. I was elevating myself and sitting in judgment. I was declaring your plans and your ways wrong. I was declaring I knew better than you because I could see and I could understand. He says, I abandoned all that I had understood. I abandoned all of my agenda. I abandoned my plan for my life. I despite, I go low, I submit, I surrender. I joyfully yield to whatever your plan is for my life, even if it's suffering, and I repent. Such a beautiful picture. Perhaps God needs to bring you to that place today. You've been bitter towards him. You've been angry. You've been accusing Perhaps you've been sitting in judgment on others thinking you're so much better than them. 
Perhaps today's the day where you say, today, God, I, I go low, I submit, I humble myself. Whatever you want for my life, I joyfully come under. And you can only do that when you see him for who he is. Listen, folks, things are not always as they seem. Can I tell you, can I tell you, one day, one day, everything will make perfect sense. Is that not true? When our faith is made sight, one day we'll look back and say, God, that was so perfect. So the choice today is to choose by faith to praise him and thank him and worship him for what we know is true, even though it doesn't seem true to us. And if we do that, we come to the place, and I think we can come to this place, where in chapter 1, Job said these famous words, the Lord gave and the Lord what? Took away. Say it with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for this instruction from a man we can identify with in some ways. Perhaps not all the suffering he's gone through, but I know there's people in this room that have, if they stood up and told their story, our hearts would just break with the loss, with the pain, with the heartache, with the sorrow. Father, we acknowledge we, it, some things happen just make no sense at all. They seem not just wrong. It seems like you hate us. It seems, and, and so help us not to live by what we see and what our puny minds can understand. Forgive us for sitting in judgment on you and your actions. Forgive us for thinking we know all things and we have a proper and better plan for our lives than you have. Father, help us and give us the, the gift of repentance. Help us to go low. Help us to submit. Help us to surrender. Help us to joyfully, as we see you high and exalted, as we see you as a sovereign one who rules over every every single aspect of your creation, including us and everything that happens to us. Father, help us to by faith today say whether you're giving or taking away, I will bless your name, I will worship you. And Father, would you remind us that nothing in this world, nothing in this world could ever satisfy like you, that you're all we need. And Father, would you help us remind us every trial in every trial we're facing, that our soul would sing the wonderful words, Christ is enough for me. We ask this in his name. Amen.